Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Jihadi Recollections. I'm Jesse Morton, once an American jihadi propagandist that ran Revolution Muslim, a New York City-based organization that helped set the template and methodology for jihadist often online recruitment in the West. Here, I sit with experts, academics, activists, and the like to discuss the jihadi social movement, subculture, and radicalization and extremism writ large. Jihadi Recollections takes a deep dive into the jihadosphere, challenging conventional belief, and painting a vivid portrait helpful for those interested in, or tasked with, understanding and combating the complex threat, radicalization, and extremism posed to the liberal world order, an order most have come to take for granted. Today we have with us Dr. Mark Bateman. Mark has one of the most fascinating backgrounds of anyone I've ever met in my life. After graduating from Harvard, he obtained an MD and a PhD in sociology from NYU. He was a flight surgeon in the U.S. Navy and a case officer at the CIA for seven years and spent three of those years supporting the Afghan Mujahideen resistance against the Soviet occupation. When the Afghan-Soviet war ended, he returned to medicine and completed a residency in psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania, but soon transitioned to an expert and public commentator on political violence after the 1993 World Trade Center attack and fully to the realm of terrorism researcher and private consultant after the 2nd September the 11th attacks that onset the war on terror. His experiences give him a unique grasp of the psychosociological factors of radicalization, a critical mind that has remained one of the few truly independent scholarly voices in the field, and an experiential and theoretical basis upon which the complexities of terrorism are appreciated and the oversimplifications and poor science that often drive radicalization and extremism studies are pointed out and effectively dismantled. He's a breath of fresh air in a murky, muddy realm. In 2004, he published his first book on the subject, Understanding Terror Networks, which shattered a lot of the conventional thinking in the field at the time, and sets forth a framework helpful in thinking not just about al-Qaeda terrorists as individuals, but as constituting parts of a network. Then, U.S. government strategies to combat the jihad were based on the traditional reasons an individual was thought to turn to terrorism, poverty, trauma, mental illness, and ignorance. But Mark refuted all these notions, showing that for the vast majority of jihadists, social bonds predated ideological commitments, and it was these social networks that inspired them to join the jihad. Then, Leaderless Resistance, published in 2008, was prescient in discussing the role online radicalization was playing in facilitating a shift away from command cotter terrorism to a leaderless resistance-inspired lone wolf model. I was an active online propagandist when it was published, and the consensus in the jihadi community was always that Sageman somehow knew something other experts did not. Since my de-radicalization, he's published now at least three more books, Misunderstanding Terrorism, A Scathing Critique on the Realm of Terrorism Studies and the Way the War on Terror Has Been Carried Out, an absolute masterpiece of historical research and useful model for radicalization into terrorism in turning to political violence, published in 2016, and most recently a book on the 7-7-2005 London bombings, which makes the case that top-down and bottom-up conceptions of terrorist organizations need not be incompatible. As far as I'm concerned, Dr. Sageman has always been able to see things the way they actually are, to recognize the limitations of expertise, with at least a tint of suggesting that social science particularly in terrorism research, is far from science at all, and often to see the way terrorist leaders and organizations are adapting as they are adapting and not after the fact. So I couldn't think of a better guest to set forth this podcast of sorts. Without further ado, let's get started. Mark, are you with us? Yes, I am, with one little correction. Mm -hmm. My second book was called Leaderless Jihad and Not Leaderless Resistance. Oh, very sorry. Leaderless Jihad. Typo. Sorry about that. 
Um, well, thank you for being with us. Uh, I'd like to start uh, by revisiting the critique of the field uh, you made with the article, The Stagnation of Terrorism Research, uh, published in the Journal for Terrorism and Political Violence in 2014. Uh, do you think that you could summarize that critique uh, and bring us up to now, commenting on how you feel about the current state of terrorism research, counterterrorism practice, and more recent efforts to prevent and counter violent extremism of all types? Uh, well, thank you for having me. Uh, it uh, truly is an honor um, to be able to to uh, to talk with you. Uh, I've been a fan uh, of uh, your innovation when you were <laughs> considered a terrorist, and and now when uh, having similar insights. Uh, uh, and you're no longer uh, welcome to the team. Um, in terms of uh, my critique, uh, in 2014, uh, I, I published uh, a very short uh, article in the Chronicle of Higher Education, and um, David Rappaport, uh, who was uh, the editor and the founder of Terrorism and Political Violence, asked me, could you turn that into an article, uh, this uh, critique of the field? And um, basically, my critique was that uh, there was a disconnect between uh, government uh, practitioners, uh, who I called uh, uh, members of the intelligence community, and uh, academics. Uh, and the disconnect uh, was about uh, two things. Uh, one was uh, the notions, uh, the concept, and the analysis uh, uh, used in social science to analyze social phenomena. And uh, we've learned quite a bit in the last 200 years when uh, social science uh, detach itself from philosophy, and we have uh, fairly rigorous uh, ways of uh, testing hypotheses uh, in the social sciences, but that's not how the intelligence community works. The intelligence community usually consists of people who can pass a clearance. Uh, they come usually fairly early in their career, like after college, and they don't really have much training in the social sciences. And so what, how they see things is very much the way journalists see things. Uh, anecdotal evidence, they don't really understand the importance of uh, uh, sampling uh, and uh, statistics or probability theory. Uh, but they do have access to a lot of information, mainly classified information, which academics who are trained to analyze uh, information and do experiments uh, do not have access to. So basically what I was uh, arguing was that uh, uh, the people in the intelligence community knew uh, everything but understood nothing because they didn't have the tools to understand. And in academia, people understood everything but knew nothing because they had no access to information. Uh, 
unfortunately, in the United States, this is still very much uh, the state uh, of the field because academics have not been given uh, the information, the data, uh, either the classified data that really need no longer be classified simply because it does not uh, tell the enemy about our sources and method, which is why they were classified in the first place. It really kind of now uh, hides, I would say, the uh, misdeeds of the intelligence community, such as torture and so on, which is why we still don't have uh, the interrogation of the Guantanamo detainees or various other things uh, uh, in, in legal cases uh, that the FBI uh, knows about. Um, um, the, so though, since the data is not available to the academics, they can't really analyze it. And most works by academics are really about uh, what they think is information, information gathered from newspapers, which are usually pretty unreliable. There's a, a high rate of uh, error in newspaper accounts, and uh, this is compounded because it's never questioned and repeated, and so it has uh, an echo effect, and so a lot of nonsense uh, is propagated by the academics. Uh, such as, you know, money is a lifeblood of terrorism. And if they actually do talk to terrorists uh, or, you know, former people who promoted terrorism, I don't think that money was really an issue with you, Jesse, was it? No, not at all. It was, uh, it was, it was far from it. It was a sacrifice of monetary gain uh, for a greater cause. Absolutely. And that's what I find in every. Uh, people who've been arrested on terrorism charges, and I've interviewed over 50 of them, and, you know, money was never an issue. Uh, and if you look at all the documents that we've captured uh, uh, in various raids or around the world, the only thing about money is how it was missing. Uh, people really were in need of money, but... You know, for them, they were, you know, unfortunately, uh, terrorism is actually does not cost very much uh, to carry out terrorist operation. Even something as, you know, large as a 9-11 uh, uh, terrorist attack costs less than half a million dollars. Uh, the London bombings cost less than a thousand pounds. And so on. And you can see that uh, most of that money uh, came from uh, the perpetrators themselves in the London bombings, or they were wired through the American banking system. So several assumptions uh, in the field uh, in the United States uh, have never been challenged, such as, you know, those guys are ideological fanatics, uh, people are... Uh, either crazy or uh, or they're driven by money and, and so on. Uh, so in this country, the only advances that I've seen in the field in the last six years are studies uh, about the Internet and Internet messaging. 
And there's some pretty high-quality work that's been done in the field, namely tabulating uh, the themes of messages, how many accounts, how, you know, uh, what's the size of the online community, and so on, and what effect it might have. So, but in terms of actually understanding the terrorists, uh, that has not been uh, the case since uh, uh, no academic uh, has had any access to uh, terrorists who have been arrested in prison. Uh, and um, as I said, the FBI, most of their education is in the law and not in the social sciences. And so they are very disoriented and in a way individualized uh, or reduced to individuals complex social phenomena. Very good. I mean, I think that that is probably one of the things that plagues thinking in the field is the, I guess you might say that in the West, uh, we pride ourselves in individualism, but it allows us to concentrate solely on individuals when it comes to understanding their behavior and their agency in behavior with a lacking appreciation for the social uh, aspects. Uh, and I think that that's one of the things that you uh, really made an uh, exaggerated and important efforts to stress in understanding terror networks in particular, the sociological or the social bonds that were required. Um, and then I also think that one of the things that's fascinating about the way that we approach the phenomenon is we have an inability to look at the contextual factors that are at play. So when we think about widening the paradigm and getting away from this sort of reductionist mentality, you talked about money and the role that money plays in terrorism. It's largely based upon an ontology that is rational actor-based, uh, in a sense. How uh, can one, when we take away that there's no profile of a terrorist and therefore uh, we have pathways into terrorism or political violence, and then we realize that radicalization is a complex phenomenon. Um, how does that complicate better understanding terrorism studies, and what are the implications for reductionist applications of understanding terrorists at an individual level when it comes down to not just counterterrorism, but preventing and countering violent extremism with alternative means? Uh, to interdiction or uh, intervention from the law enforcement community? Well, it's a very complex set of questions you just asked. Uh, I, I think that you have to, to start to look at the history of how counterterrorism uh, uh, started to become important in this country. I think that the big realization about terrorism uh, it came around 1995. In 1995, there were uh, two events at Um uh, I think, domestic national security uh, analysts. Uh, one was, of course, the Oklahoma City bombing. Not Muslim plot, but... Uh, it killed uh, a lot of people and, and uh, was, by, at that point, uh, the largest terrorist attack on, on, on the United States. Uh, the second was the Amshinrikyo uh, train attack in uh, Tokyo because it used uh, a gas siren 
uh, uh, and raise the possibility of uh, terrorists using uh, weapons of mass destruction. And so um, people started taking terrorism very uh, seriously around that point. They looked around, looked at uh, what were the big threats, and I think that uh, they, they thought that uh, al-Qaeda or uh, bin Laden in Sudan was a kind of financier of terrorism. And so I think the CIA set up uh, uh, a station, a virtual station in Northern Virginia on the uh, Mike Shoya. Uh, and uh, this became more famous, of course, after the East Africa uh, embassy bombing that killed uh, over 220 people. Uh, and, and winded uh, over 5,000 more. Uh, and uh, so the idea is that what do we do? And at that time, the Clinton administration uh, thought that it had uh, accomplished uh, uh, a tremendous uh, task by uh, nullifying some of the uh, cartel from uh, Colombia. Uh, sending uh, uh, drugs to to the United States, and they had done that uh, through trying to smother uh, the uh, profit motive. You know, namely, uh, money is the lifeblood of large criminal organization. And uh, you remember, they also were starting to. Uh, talk about uh, the organization of the cartel as narco-terrorism. And so they completely mistook the, 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 the notion that the Cali cartel was similar to Al-Qaeda. And, you know, you cannot have a more opposed <laughs> organization in terms of mission. The Cali cartel was indeed all about money. I mean, it was about... Uh, and and money was a lifeblood of this organization. And if you took the the, the monetary uh, uh, profit away from the organization, you were going to eliminate the organization. So I thought they could do the same thing with Al Qaeda, mm-hmm. and uh, and so they they they, they 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 kind of extended laws, uh, uh, money laundering, to kind of try to. Uh, prevent a uh, new large, ter- large terrorist attack, which they believe was due to the money element. Which is, and we still have that. I mean, you know, most of uh, the people arrested for terrorism in this country, the vast majority of the 90%, it's about material support, which is you do something, you provide money for uh, a designated terrorist organization designated by the State Department. And therefore, uh, you can then uh, face uh, 20 years in prison, even if you gave as little as $1, because you have uh, absolute liability uh, in those cases. But that's really where uh, the notion of uh, using money came from terrorism. It was really very much an extrapolation of the success that we had against uh, cocaine and the Cali cartel uh, transplanted into t- to terrorism. I don't know if you knew that, Jesse. I, I did not, yes. I did not. But it but makes sense. It makes sense yeah. now. Sure, yeah, sure. Uh, so, 
you know, that's, you know, my point here is that just focusing on money and not going to terrorism doesn't really cost that much. People can actually travel with uh, $10,000 and very, very few terrorist attacks cost that much. So it's not, it's not an issue. You're not going to uh, prevent uh, terrorist uh, attacks uh, by trying to, to, you know, control the flow of money. That is, that is an errant fool. Um, the, the major problem in the field, as I see it, and I, when I'm talking uh, the field, I'm talking about the field in the United States because uh, the field is really quite different in various other countries. Uh, and I think that uh, the field is becoming very exciting with a lot of new ideas in France uh, and the francophone uh, uh, literature simply because uh, academics have been given access to the hundreds of people in prison. They can interview them. They can do research on uh, the investigation that were done uh, uh, about those people, and they can also interview the 22,000 suspects, the people who are fichés S in French, you know, that they have a, a, a special um, designation uh, that um, that academics could go and, and, and finally uh, interview and analyze as a group. Mm-hmm. And so we have... Uh, a lot of interesting stuff that uh, that seem to contradict a lot of things that we have in the United States. There, they really kind of don't focus so much about money. Uh, they they focus more in terms of association with various people, which I I, I don't think is uh, the right approach. But because um, those uh, academics do have access, they can start looking at different aspect of um, why uh, of all the people who have a similar kind of socioeconomic background, only a few of them uh, turn to terrorism. And this is kind of a huge issue in the field that's been completely neglected. One thing about terrorism is that it is extremely, extremely rare. Basically, what... what uh, the, the the incidence of terrorism in the West is about three new terrorists per 10 million people per year, which is so small that, you know, you, you, um, it's really kind of hard to fathom uh, what are the implications because if you can't design any kind of instrument you know, whether it's uh, a questionnaire or whether it's a behavior like uh, uh, being a sympathizer of ISIS on Twitter. Uh, even though those behaviors are very rare, let's say they're about 11,000, about two years ago, there were about 11,000 sympathizers of ISIS on Twitter. Uh, out of 330 million Americans. This is very, very, very small. But even among the sympathizers, very few people would go on to become supporters, like material supporters, being able to uh, be 
uh, charged and then convicted with uh, terrorism-related crime, and even fewer uh, would be violent. So in terms of um, uh, terrorism-related crime, it's about 30 a year, and in terms of violence, it's less than one a year. Uh, and that's in a population of 33 million people. Now, if you contrast that to the homicide rate in the United States, the homicide rate is five per 100,000 per year mm -hmm. uh, in the last one, uh, in 2017. So you can see the magnitude of, of the difference. And mm -hmm. because of the low base rate, yeah. that means that any instrument that you have, whether it's a behavior like being uh, a synthesizer online, uh, you know, will generate an enormous amount of false positive. Mm -hmm. About, you know, 300 to 1. Mm -hmm. uh, I did the math. <laughs> That's why mm -hmm. I, I mm -hmm. can tell you it's 300 to 1. Mm -hmm. and, and, and this means that a lot of those guys who are uh, set up and, uh, and uh, by sting operation and entrapment, uh, they probably would never have done anything. But what it does, it kind of, it very much creates a lot of resentment in, uh, the, the targeted community, in this case Muslims, uh, but it could be the far right or it could be anything, uh, that because of the resentment, people get angry and may become terrorists because of that. So in a sense, the contextual factor namely the FBI's scrutiny and even arrest or harassment uh, of a suspect may create very much uh, the effect that they're trying to prevent, namely political violence. Mm -hmm. Very good. So, I mean, I think that this is a, it's, it's, it's a pertinent point, uh, the low base rates uh, of radicals that go on to actually become terrorists is something that is astonishingly low. Yet at the end of the day, this realm of radicalization studies, as you know, the field starts to develop 7-7 bombing sort of induced this concern for developing protocols and mechanisms for their prevent program, which led to all kinds of stigmatization, the likes of which you're talking about with the FBI. And they treat right. a very low base rate phenomenon as if it was much higher frequency in its occurrence. And what they did essentially was they conflated a radical with a terrorist and were unable to distinguish between the nuances, not just in ideology, but in contextual factors, in other factors, psychological factors, and, 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 and other components of that. Um, and there's very, and, and, and another critique that I think is related to that is your, uh, critique in, your earliest work, 2004 Understanding Terrorist Network, on the fact that the control group is never really taken into consideration. And one of the things that I think has the potential to push the field forward um, is to look at the utilization of control groups and to look at the base rate. Fascinating, you know, uh, to see when you compare, for example, jihadists under, Al under the threat posed by al-Qaeda, the 2001 to 2000, and, you know, the early period was that mental health, ratios, socioeconomic status, educational inputs, mental health, all of those factors were actually at a lower base rate than the general population. And um, 
So I think that when you start to use control groups, the question then becomes not just to ask, you know, how do you identify who might go on or who has a, a, a higher uh, probability or propensity to become a terrorist, but what is it about individuals that have the same sort of underlying uh, demographic criteria uh, that makes them not become terrorists? And then, indeed, uh, what is it about concentrating on the realm of radicalization that can stigmatize critical thinking and treat whole populations, like Muslim communities in particular, and maybe now, as we transition into the far right, even those communities, that can stigmatize them to a degree whereby you're concentrating on countering radicalization, but in a sense, you're actually making the problem worse by increasing the probability that a higher rate or a low, the, the low base rate that you become terrorists will have the grievance that is provided by the state that can facilitate that transition. I think that comes out in, 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 your, in your model based on social identity uh, theory that is in the turn to political violence. But I wonder, um, have we developed a better capacity to inculcate and incorporate control groups into the realm of studying extremism? And if not, uh, how would we maybe uh, utilize that sort of thinking, which is competent social science thinking, um, in developing a framework for doing uh, better research and then leading into better programming that's alternative to interdiction, investigation, and, 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 and the law enforcement approach? Yes. Um, I've actually uh, done this uh, in a classified realm mm -hmm. uh, where I generated a control group, which were basically the friends and relatives, you know, the friendship and kinship uh, uh, argument that I made in my first book, mm -hmm. and so I constructed uh, uh, a, a database uh, that um, consisted of the friend and kin of uh, people who uh, carried out terrorist operations uh, uh, about uh, 10 years ago. And, and uh, the thing is that you want to do is to kind of uh, detect elements that distinguish the test population, the terrorists who carried out operation, against the people who are just like them but did not. And uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot of the um, variables uh, are contextual variables and really take the context into... Uh, have to take the context into uh, into account. So they have an instrument in in uh, Britain that they call the Extremist uh, Research uh, Group (ERG) 22 mm -hmm. plus 22 yeah. factors, mm -hmm. and uh, they administered those to 171 uh, people that they had. Uh, uh, arrested on terrorism-related charges and counts, you know, try to look at uh, what was uh, the highest percentage of the 171 of that sample, uh, uh, at least the one that those uh, people in prison uh, mentioned uh, that motivated them. And the highest was the need to redress justice identity, meaning, and belonging, and political and moral motivation. And all of those, as you can see, are contextual because 
even identity, you know, that you think, oh, well, identity is stable. No, actually, identity is not stable mm -hmm. uh, because we have lots of multiple social identities. Yes. We have, you know, potentially an infinity, but it's a one that threatened that really can become the most salient in your mind and say, oh, you know, uh, I'm, uh, I'm threatened. I have to defend myself. Uh, and and uh, so when you have an escalation of conflict between one of your potential um, uh, imagined community uh, that's threatened by another group, whether it's a state or maybe it's a far-right movement and so on, your consciousness, your awareness of being Muslim, for instance, if they're actually anti-Muslim, becomes very high up. I mean, so identity here uh, comes, uh, you know, climbs to, you know, that identity is a primordial identity that you have at that time. Then you go home and you see your kids and you hug them. Your identity as a father, <laughs> a husband, becomes far more, you know, salient than your identity of being Muslim. So identity changes according to the context you're in. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and so you see the, the three factors from the ERG 22, uh, I actually, you know, combined them into the model that you talked about. Namely, mm -hmm. the first step was the awareness of... Uh, uh, a social identity of uh, a certain group, then the group uh, being in a political context. Uh, for instance, let me give you an example. Uh, you're a student, you don't like the food in the cafeteria, you protest, and the dean calls the cops who beat you up. Now the food <laughs> becomes totally background. As a matter of fact, you forget it what you remember is the cop beating you up. So now you have, you know, uh, a social identity as being, uh, uh, you know, a student that's being uh, uh, persecuted <laughs> uh, by the police or by the state. And that becomes now your new social identity, but it's a political social identity. And under three conditions, this political social identity uh, if, you know, when you have an escalation of conflict between your own imagined community and the community you're identifying contrast to, whether it's a state or another group, the KKK or, you know, um, you know, Catholic and Protestant in Ireland or <laughs> whatever, uh, it, 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 it's a, it could be anybody. Uh, you know, socialist against, uh, uh, royalist, uh, or, you know, whatever it is. It could be anything political. Uh, if you have an escalation of conflict, you're going to have now a shift to the extremity, where the most credible voices are the ones that those guys attack us, we have to defend ourselves. And so everybody becomes an extremist. Being, being an extremist is not a stable characteristic of a person. It really depends on the context you put that, in, in which you put that person in. Um, the second is disillusionment with uh, legal ways, legitimate ways uh, to 
resolve uh, the grievance or to address the grievance, you know, either against the police, against the group that attacks you, and so on. And if you realize you have no recourse to the court, or they're not sympathetic, or they, you know, or, or nobody listens to you, and then you have the uh, your your outgroup, the person that you identify in contrast to, uh, attack your own group, a few people will volunteer to become soldiers to <laughs> defend your attacked community. And those people have, thre- have crossed the threshold of violence, and this is what creates uh, terrorism. Now, people talk a lot about ideology, and... Uh, you know, ideology in the history of uh, domestic political violence, whether it was uh, the French Revolution and so on, really kind of played a factor as long as people, uh, it was part of the identity, the social identity of a person. Mm-hmm. So the people who lived in the Vendée during uh, the reign of terror, they were pro-king, they were... Catholic, as opposed to the Republican uh, uh, who who were attacking them. Uh, kind of the same thing with uh, people who then became Republican in contrast to the Royalists. They wanted to establish a republic, a democracy in the country. And uh, a lot of the attacks uh, during the 19th century are Republicans you know, uh, attacking uh, royalty. And so the ideology is really, we want a republic. It was not much, much higher than that. But that can form part of the identity. I'm one of the persons who wants the republic. And if we uh, then shift to something like nationalism, well, you know, when... Uh, in 1941, the Japanese attacked uh, the United States at Pearl Harbor, everybody. And, uh, you know, at that time, in 1941, we were very strongly isolationist. Uh, Roosevelt could not bring us to the war against the Nazi. But that one attack changed everything, and everybody became American, you know. And uh, the, ideology, this, the ideology of America is, of course, we are democratic, uh, this is an American dream, but it's really, we are part of this nation. That, that's, that's what the ideology, and those guys, those Japanese attacked us, and we're going to declare war on the Japanese, and then uh, the, the, the Germans declared war on us, and therefore we declared war on the Germans after that. Uh, but you can see that it's not as much as the ideology. Now, when you talk about Religion, of course, religion is kind of an ideology. It was, uh, even though religious people would say, no, it's not an ideology, it's a truth or whatever, <laughs> you know, they would say. Um, but it's really what constitutes their identity. And the more your group is attacked, you, be, you try to become a pure member of the group that you are in. And so, you know, more extreme forms of, because it's what distinguishes you from the other guy. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, you will become more attracted to purer, uh, and by purer, I mean more fundamentalist forms of, of that, uh, uh, 
of that sectarian group in mm-hmm. North Kemali, that religious group. So you can see that even something like ideology is very much contextual, depends on whether your group is attacked or not by people uh, either from your uh, uh, any type of group. So, for instance, Muslims are Muslims. Oh, well, they define themselves as Sunni and Shia, and then they become fundamentalist Sunni and fundamentalist Shia. But you still have Sunnis who can attack each other, like al-Nusra or, you know, the Islamic State. And here, you know, the differences are very minimal, but they still very much matter to the people uh, who fight because they can identify with the small, 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 minute differences which to an outsider said, but those guys are the same, how come they fight? No, but to the guys who identify with a group, those little differences are critical because it distinguishes you from the other guy who's trying to kill you and you're going to try to kill. Mm-hmm. So my point about ideology is that it is not stable, it is not always important, but it comes important if that is what distinguishes you from your perceived enemy. Mm-hmm. Very good, very good. Uh, so many places to go uh, from there. Uh, I, I'm, 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 I'm thinking about the importance of context and the context that we're currently in. So right now, uh, massive reduction in terrorist attacks carried out in West, um, apart from the releases, the terrorism-related releases in Britain recently. But there's been a major decline, largely because the context is very different uh, with regard to the perceptions of ISIS having strength, with regard to the presence of the United States and Western allies in the Middle East, Iraq and Syria in particular. But now the contextual circumstance is a overriding shift and concern for domestic, particularly far right wing uh, extremism. And all things considered, though I know that you're not uh, necessarily an expert on far right wing uh, extremism, do you see with regard to the negligence in the role of context and the negligence in the role of ideology only as a factor in formulating identity, that a lot of the sort of mistaken conceptualizations put forth to understand jihadist terrorism, particularly after 9-11, that we are maybe in danger of applying the same set of oversimplistic formulae to the domestic threat, and in turn, perhaps, uh, even uh, making the threat that far-right-wing extremism poses uh, to us at home uh, even worse uh, in, as an outcome? Um, yes, I do. Um, you know, political violence has always been with us in one form or another. Um, people have identified with groups and then uh, beat up other groups uh, that uh, they felt uh, threatened their group or uh, threaten uh, the advantages that your group uh, had. So you had a lot of uh, uh, white and black violence in the South because uh, they felt uh, that uh, former slaves uh, were threatening the dominance of uh, white people over there. Um, you know, therefore you had the KKK and various other type of organization, uh, right-wing militia, uh, this, in turn, uh, had 
some uh, blacks trying to defend themselves. Uh, and uh, this, uh, when they articulated that uh, during uh, the civil rights movement, this scared the hell out of uh, all the whites and, uh, in a sense, uh, put kind of a stop to, to, to the progress uh, in uh, the civil rights movement that you had. You had the backlash in the 70s and the 80s, and, uh, and now, you know, you have uh, still tremendous inequalities uh, among blacks and whites uh, in this country as, as a result. And so you can see that um, when people start identifying uh, with uh, communities that either persecute it or who lose their advantage, uh, they start to defend themselves. So here uh, you have um, an increased polarization in this country among uh, the right and the left. Uh, and uh, you see that very much uh, both uh, in our political elites that uh, the right, the Republican and Democratic Party don't really want to collaborate anymore on just about anything. It's complete uh, shutdown of any collaboration, but you also find it in the base where you have the Antifa movement and you have uh, a more far-right movement. You have an increase of... Uh, um, you know, far-right movement as uh, computed by the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center, and you have increased violence, uh, both here and in Europe. This is not just uh, an American movement, but it's really a whole movement uh, uh, throughout uh, the West, uh, simply because they feel threatened by immigrants. And so you have a very strong anti-immigrant movement uh, throughout the West that, that has complex roots, but uh, I do see uh, uh, domestic uh, violence uh, increasing along this theme. Uh, there was always a lot of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. By the way, uh, when we talk about terrorism, we have to kind of define what we talk about. Right. And what I talk about in terrorism to me, it's a categorization of the, uh, your outgroup violence, uh, outgroup political violence during domestic peacetime. And this is important because nobody thinks he's a terrorist. A terrorist is always the other guy. Mm -hmm. Terrorism is always the other guy's violence. And so, you know, from the far right, they see the, the Antifa, are the terrorists, and the Antifa guys think the far right are the terrorists. So, you know, who you define as a terrorist depends on where you stand. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so we arbitrarily define some people as terrorists and others not. Uh, namely, the people who are against us uh, uh, are terrorists, the people who are for us are freedom fighters. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, this is kind of uh, the old uh, 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 quip about uh, one man's terrorist is another's freedom fighter. And, and that's basically correct. And that's why I say it's a categorization of the outgroup political violence during domestic peacetime. Mm -hmm. And so this, this will 
uh, happen, uh, especially in a country that has so many weapons uh, and 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 is pretty violent. Our, as I mentioned before, the homicide rate in this country is five per hundred thousand. The homicide rate in in uh, in Austria it's zero point five per hundred thousand. It's ten times lower. You know, in England and France, it's about one, and you know that that's some of the highest uh, in in Europe. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, in the West, uh, the second highest uh, is uh, is Canada, where it's I think one point nine or one point eight per hundred thousand. So you can see that uh, the availability uh, of weapon and the strong history, uh, culture of violence, you know, uh, very much even um, uh, lays the groundwork of political violence because uh, in other countries, uh, when you have political disputes, you try to resolve them either through demonstration, I mean, in, in peaceful ways. Over here, you know, because of the availability of weapons, there is a much shorter path to getting your weapon mm-hmm. and, and, and killing the other. Sure. Uh, and 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 so we 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 tend to to kind of uh, neglect that because we're so used to it. I mean, it's kind of interesting to me that in 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 France, uh, where. Uh, again, the homicide rate is, you know, five times lower than uh, the United States. It's about 20% of what we have. They feel very insecure, whereas here we have a much higher <laughs> homicide rate, and we don't feel insecure. But insecurity is, is really one of the major, major themes during, you know, the past presidential election and now the municipal election that are going to take place in the in a few months in France. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, the, the feeling of insecurity is, is subjective. It, it's, it's, it very much depends on what you're used to. In France, they're more used to, you know, being uh, much more peaceful with a lot of demonstration, that they have far more demonstration than we do, but they're usually, they're usually peaceful demonstration. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and and I think another thing about the uh, framework that you put forth for the, tra- the turning to uh, political violence is that it's unique in that uh, when you open the box up and include the context and include the uh, sociological phenomenon associated with radicalization in general, you identify the role the state can play. Uh, oh, absolutely. In, and that's, in, that's in politics, you from other researchers. So right. once you insert that variable, how does that alter the landscape of trying to understand the phenomenon of political violence? In well, when you try to, you know, define uh, violence as just uh, because of money or because of ideology, you basically obscure the yeah. politics of it. And political violence, terrorism is foremost and first and foremost political violence. It's about the politics of it. It's about political grievances. And, uh, you know, some of the political grievances are legitimate. And so by, by trying to kind of focus on CVE, for instance, mm-hmm. countering violent extremism, you really kind of remove 
you know, the role of the state, the contribution of the state to the outbreak of uh, violence and and the uh, uh, perseverance, the, the continuation of violence. For instance, you know, if you just look at the global neo-jihadi violence, you know, the group like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and so on, you can see that in the last 20 years, the low point was 2013 and 14. And then, uh, you know, ISIS was uh, basically proclaimed, uh, Islamic State was proclaimed in 2014, and uh, this very much, you know, threatened uh, uh, the West to kind of, uh, we remembered what Al-Qaeda did to us, and so they assumed that Islamic State would do the same. And so they started uh, forming a coalition and, and started bombing uh, ISIS. Well, in uh, September of 2014, right after the first bomb fell on ISIS, you know, they declared war on the West, especially France, the United States, if they could get it. But, um, you know, there were not too many Americans who went there. A lot of Frenchmen did. And therefore, you know, they started a whole campaign of violence, of terrorism attack on France. But that was after France started attacking them, they retaliated. So all those terrorist attacks are all retaliation. Just look at the chronology. It's crystal clear. Mm-hmm. So what is it? What, if we if we accept the role that the state or the reaction of society plays to facilitating the us versus them sort of feeling of insecurity, particularly from amongst uh, violent extremists or radical groupings, what can we do better in the realm, if anything at all, in the realm of prevention and countering violent extremism? Should we be concerned more so with identifying individuals that may take that? step towards violence, or should we be most concerned about creating an environment that gives them an alternative uh, recourse to address the grievances, primarily dialogue? And I say this because a lot of things are unfolding right now where, you know, sort of cancel culture in the West has forced scrutiny of social media companies to pull down a lot of controversial views, but certainly not terroristic views. And what you see happening is a migration to alternative platforms that are harder to monitor, but then it cements the us versus them sort of mentality and may very well, in my opinion, facilitate uh, an an increasing likelihood that those that are in these political protest communities take it upon themselves to perceive the situation as the only possible solution here is to act out in violence. And I think that that it's very dangerous, particularly when we talk about domestic terrorism, because when we were radicalizing jihadists or Muslims in America, or attempting to at least, um, the percentage of the population that was susceptible, if you will, to our message was very low. But with hyperpolarization and a further sort of widening of views on the right and the left here at home, one can see the low base rate of radicals from amongst what might be considered the alt-right or the populist right um, I guess it just builds an easier bridge between a uh, a radical movement and then the violent extremist offshoots of that movement that actually promote things like neo-fascist uh, doctrines for accelerationist killings or for random leaderless uh, resistance-type mentalities uh, to go forth. So I wonder, what is it that the realm of preventing and countering violent extremism should be most focused on? Crafting context, shaping culture or worried about identifying individuals 
that uh, might go on and presenting them with alternative ideas as they say in counter messaging work um, or presenting them with one-on-one peer-to-peer interventions and thinking that by extracting one person from the network or presenting alternative ideas to people in a network, you're actually going to do uh, more than just create more harm if you if you get where I'm, where I'm going. Right. Um, well, this is a natural experiment been played in France, and I'll talk about it uh, in a minute. But I just want to say that uh, what really needs to be done is uh, tone down the rhetoric, uh, because um, it, it's all derivative of the escalation of conflict between two groups. So what you need to do is basically de-escalate. Uh, so you can't really demonize the other guy, especially a government official. You know, there's no, forget about use of metaphor like the war and terror, we at war, because basically the other guy may also believe he's at war and therefore he's going to war against you. <laughs> you know, you have to, to, to tone down the rhetoric, uh, you, to de-escalate, uh, even the metaphor that you use. You have to respect the other person. Into you, you may you have to listen to what they uh, their grievances are. You may not agree with it, or you may not give into it, but at least give them the courtesy of listening them out. You know that that goes a long way to diffuse a lot of situation. So the first thing that you can control is look at your own behavior and how you can modify it. Mm-hmm. You also have to kind of uh, influence uh, the press, and the mm-hmm. press is very much influenced by the government. As a matter of fact, most of the information the press has is from government sources, you know, even reporting on what's happening in Syria or uh, Iraq. Look at the byline. It's always Washington because it's always a leak from either the Pentagon or an intel agency here. It's not about people embedded over there in Iraq that do the reporting. Uh, so you can see that the government can change a lot of things in terms of both framing things for the media and say, well, you know, we, we have a dispute and we'll try to resolve it and it's a legitimate dispute or, you know, at least what they say may be legitimate but we can't do anything about it or something like that. Um, uh, but what you need to do definitely is uh, to uh, uh, to tone down uh, the, the, the tone of, uh, of, of how you address the out group, the person that uh, has the grievances. You, you, and of course, what we're doing right now in this country is exact opposite. Yeah. You know, where uh, we increase the tone immediately and 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 dehumanize them, humiliate them, and so this is uh, this is not the way to to uh, to prevent. It. This is by far, by far, by far. And I underline it very strongly, yeah. Yeah. much more important than even identify potential person, people, because there won't be any potential people doing anything if they, uh, there's no uh, uh, escalation of conflict. Um, as I said, there was a, a very interesting 
uh, experiment done in France. And uh, it's not, it wasn't a conscious experiment, but it turns out to be a natural experiment. They had people that, uh, uh, you know, they felt uh, were uh, jihadist, uh, and uh, they put them in prison, and uh, they decided not to do the... the mistake that Spain did, putting them all together, uh, and, and so they kind of spread them around in the prisons of France, and, and uh, it turned out that uh, in the, I guess, prison hierarchy, where, you know, uh, child molesters uh, uh, are probably at the bottom, uh, and uh, you know, people who can rob banks uh, often at the top. Uh, jihadists were even more than that. You know, so the jihadists were really on top of the reputational ladder in prison. So they were looked up to. And a lot of people, you know, say, yeah, you know, that sounds good. And yes, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it explains a lot of uh, uh, stuff. It's a little bit about what happened. Uh, in, in, in prisons, uh, in the United States in the 1960s where, uh, black power and black pencils, uh, became much more prominent compared to the other, you know, prisoners. They were seen as political prisoners, they were seen as hardcore and so on. And it's kind of the same thing that really happened in, in, uh, in France. And so I said, oh, well, we're not going to spread them around. We're going to kind of put them in uh, Fleury-Mérogis, uh, which is the largest prison in Europe. It houses 5,000 people. And so we'll, we'll put them there. So what happened there, you, uh, you created a, a different dynamic, meaning that all those guys uh, really thought of themselves now as prisoners of war, which, of course, as soldiers, and as soon as they'll go out, they, they, they'll, uh, they'll continue the fight, you know, <laughs> as opposed to in this country, if you can't arrest it, say, okay, maybe I did my... my my uh, my own, uh, you know, I've done my own contribution for the jihad, but now it's over for me. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, and you demobilize yourself. That was not the case in France. It's still not the case in France. So mm -hmm. now they have units that are really kind of very strong proselytizing units, mm -hmm. including the women, women mm -hmm. units where, you know, you have like a core of about 10 women completely uh, dominating and imposing their uh, discipline on, on, on the other women at, at Flory because Flory has a women's wing, and the same thing among the guys. Uh, and so what you have is further radicalization and the hardening of their beliefs and their belligerence in prison when you have, so, in a sense, France lost both ways, you know, when they actually tried to spread them uh, or when they tried to contain them together. Uh, and they realized that it was a good phenomenon. Yeah, they sent psychologists and they sent social workers to try to de-radicalize, and, and they had very active program, and they've had them for the last four years now. And you know, basically all those guys learn how to lie to the okay. social workers mm -hmm. and, 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 and their ideas were, were actually strengthened by the group. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you know, they met basically uh, uh, at prayer, at mm-hmm. uh, when they, when they went uh, for walks, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. to the point that uh, you know other Muslims uh, really wanted to avoid them, and so decided to go on the networks, <laughs> which mm-hmm. the uh, the political uh, uh, the people. Uh, in prison for, for 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 terrorism charges, were not allowed to you know just get away from them, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 so you know it, it's kind of a very hard <laughs> yes, indeed, yeah. thing to do, uh, and and so far, you know I I've read several of the attempts, French attempts at uh, quote deradicalization and. To me, first of all, there's no control group, so we really don't know what works or not. Right. Uh, but what I see is actually a worsening of the situation where people, and, and, you know, it's interesting, the country, because those guys have nothing to do, so they read, you know, for the first time, they actually read some, uh, some stuff, and there is now a whole new literature mm-hmm. of French ideologues uh, Islamic ideologues uh, who just didn't exist three or four years ago. That uh, and and they they tell you, uh, you know, the next wave, the next ideology will come from our prison here. You know, mm-hmm. after all, you know, Marx was in prison. You know, a lot of the Marxists are in prison. You know, and so on. And, and you know, they may be right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, you see this, I mean, a, a number of things with regard to terrorism-related offenders. They tried the same thing in the Bureau of Prison System in the United States with the communication management early on into the war on terror. That was exposed, came to light in the public. One of the things, fascinating things that happened there was you put Ahmad Musa Jabril on a block, and soon young children who really had made mistakes in their lives that otherwise may have, uh, de-radicalized naturally were exposed to a preacher who was facilitating the entrenchment of their views. And then he went on to become sort of a primary propagandist when he was released in 2014. Uh, my co-defendant was there. And that, now the CMU model of, of localizing and keeping terrorism-related offenders in U.S. prisons together has sort of been altered and changed and is done on a case-by-case basis. But it taps into largely as well what's going on in the U.K., where there was recently a stabbing of a guard that was carried out by an individual that wasn't a terrorism-related offender, but that had been housed with uh, jihadists, so to say, and had radicalized in prison. And then the number and spate of attacks, one of them on his way or at lunch break to a de-radicalization conference, uh, Usman Khan killing. So, I mean, I think this is one of the lingering sort of questions that is asked, not just with regard to terrorism-related offenders in prison, the domestic cases, but also with regard to repatriation and the fact that there's been no repatriation, particularly of men, uh, in uh, Western countries that had citizens travel to join to join ISIS. Uh, but um, I mean, I think that uh, it does beg the question about what we mean by de-radicalization. Uh, we do want to believe in it. Uh, we do want to suggest that it works, but the science around it is mostly just based upon like. Uh, interviews with former extremists like myself, you know, why did you leave? How did you leave? And then we seem to glean lessons from that. But again, it's always about the individual. It never takes into consideration the one thing that we have an ability to do, which is to craft context 
and to shape some sort of culture uh, that is resilient to uh, terrorism uh, or even radicalization in general that's supportive of uh, of terrorism. So I think these are complex questions and, and problems. Is there a way to, um, or I guess the question would be that considered, uh, in 2011, we sort of saw the killing of bin Laden, the Arab Spring would lead into democratization of the Middle East, and that the war on terror would have basically wind down. And we were tying up loose ends, so to say, you know, thinking about lone actor attacks as if they would sort of, you know, dissipate, the threat would wind down, and then we'd move on away from uh, concern. And then ISIS comes onto the scene in the context of uh, the Syrian civil war turning jihad and whatnot. Um, what do you see for the future of um, the threat posed by jihadism? And then basically with regard to how do you tie up those loose ends, because there is that reality that a lot of these people will be returning from prison to, to, to the streets, the, and even in the United States. Um, and there's also this reality of returning foreign fighters. And there is a resiliency of the narrative and the ideology, but there's really not a lot of uh, ability to make contacts to the jihad or to get involved in the social networks where that uh, group identity can become predominant over the individual identity. What are some of the things that we should be doing now in a period of contraction, so to say, to make sure that we don't face a similar uh, resurrection uh, or sustained threat um, or uh, the potential for exponential growth in risk of threat in the event that there's another Syria on the horizon? Well, basically, well, how do you see the future and what should we be primarily concerned with understanding now uh, in order to improve uh, the conditions we find ourselves in? Well, the first, the most important factor is don't go and, and, and bomb and kill Muslims. Uh, actually, most of our hopes about the Arab Spring came to fruition. Uh, the number of attacks in, uh, in the West, uh, decreased to two and four in 2013-2014. It's only after the West got involved in killing Muslims in the Middle East that they increased again. So as I say, it's very much contextual. It, it really, uh, you know, the hope of 2011 actually did was realized in 2013 and 14. The number of attack went down. People mm -hmm. did not talk about attacking the West. They really did not. They only thought it when the West became at war with uh, uh, with uh, ISIS. And uh, this is a lesson, you know. Uh, getting involved in foreign policy has domestic repercussion, especially mm -hmm. if the victimized group abroad has a, a strong, you know, potential community at home, you know, who, who then will identify with the victims abroad and may, and may do things uh, and may decide to retaliate. So that, that's, that's really a, an extremely important factor. You know, should we meddle in uh, uh, the Middle East? Uh, I think that we should, but not to select... To, to, to going out and bombing and killing. I mean, there's many ways to really be involved in the world. And I'm not uh, an isolationist right. without, without going out and killing people. Yeah. Uh, 
but but if you do start telling people, especially with social media, you see it in a much more vivid way than ever before in the history of the world because you see mm-hmm. pictures, you know, the videos are there. Uh, that never really happened before, and it's no longer controlled by large media corporation. Uh-huh. It's it's very much democratized, and so you can't really stop it. Uh, and uh, and this will get people at home very upset and deciding to retaliate at home because they can't really go abroad to defend their community. So this is the number one issue. What happens in the future very, very much depends on what we do about the future, mm-hmm. not about individuals and so on. Yeah. Now, uh, two other aspects. So what happens with... All the people who are uh, in Syria and Iraq, well, <laughs> you know, it's kind of interesting, but in America, people don't understand that most of the prisoners, uh, the Kurdish prisoners, are women and children. They're not men. Very few men. Men are automatically killed <laughs> uh, when, you know, they're very, very few of them captured. They're usually shot on sight by uh uh, Iraqi forces, the Kurdish forces less so. So, you know, out of, uh, you know, the 900,000 uh, in uh, our whole, you know, the very famous camp, if you look at the pictures of three women and kids, there are few men there. You know, at most there's like 80 men. Uh, the men who are kind of uh, sent then to Iraq and are condemned to death, uh, I think the Iraqi government will use those uh, to try to pry out some money. I think they're going to try to say, uh, well, we'll kill them unless you buy them from us. Mm-hmm. And most governments in the West are unwilling to do so because what's happening in France, again, I go back to France because France is by far the most important country in the West in terms of being victimized now by uh, this wave of uh, global neo-jihadi terror. Uh, You know, they have had the most victims uh, in the last five years, by far the most attacks, uh, both uh, planned and spontaneous, uh, uh, you know, loners and groups. I mean, France is in a category by itself for its own reason. but uh, France cannot, as I just mentioned, uh, about uh, spreading the, the, the people who were arrested and condemned, convicted, um, they are about over 40% capacity in terms of the prison. They are, the prison were not meant to deal with such high numbers. And so they don't really know how to house them, which is one of the reasons why they're refusing for repatriation, because they don't have the capacity yet to, uh, to, to, to be able to house them, unless they put them in concentration camps, which, of course, has been a French solution for the past century or so. You know, <laughs> we don't have anything. We're going to put electrical wires around, you know, this, uh, this building, and we'll leave them here. And uh, we'll take them one at a time until, you know, we have other facilities. You know, it's kind of a temporary concentration camp, but they are concentration camps. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one of the reasons what to do about them. And uh, it's really kind of very hard to evaluate the dangerousness of those people because we really don't have any tools uh, 
mm-hmm. to evaluate dangerousness. And a lot of it depends uh, on, on whether the person thinks of himself still as a soldier, but now a prisoner of war and will resume fighting when he's liberated, or a guy who's done his jihad and is retired, you know, <laughs> is finished with it. Mm-hmm. And um, there are a few went there for humanitarian reasons, but to tell the truth, the majority went there to fight. Sure. So are people disillusioned not wanting to fight anymore? Uh, that, that's really kind of, you know, the big question, and they don't really have any tools to be able to distinguish between the two. And it's a, it's a real issue mm-hmm. uh, for friends. The third element that I wanted to talk about <laughs> is, um, you know, I, I told you that in France, there is now, uh, uh, you know, a really tremendous ideological fervor uh, in the prison with people discussing, uh, draw uh, lessons from what has happened in the last three or four years. And, you know, they're pretty realistic. What's evolving right now, and in France also, just like England, they've had those loners uh, stabbing, uh, you know, guards, and especially they were from people who were not <laughs> uh, convicted of terrorist offense. They were just, you know, common law uh, criminal, uh, and. Uh, the ideologues right now in prison think that's a mistake because, uh, you know, it's not changing anything. Uh, it's not changing at all uh, the condition and the likelihood that they may gain power in France or anything like that. So, you know, they, 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 they tend to discourage those, those loners from striking at the guard. What, what they really kind of evolving to is more of, it's kind of interesting, but more of a Muslim Brotherhood strategy of trying to now, you know, uh, change society from the ground up, from the bottom up. Uh, and if they have a, a, a critical mass that they think may uh, follow them, then, you know, have an insurrection against the government and overtake it. And I mean, so they, they have not given up the idea of establishing an Islamic state, you know, in, in France and, and then Europe in, in, in general. But they, 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 they're rethinking the strategy because right now they, they realize they're just not strong enough to fight uh, the, the powers of the state and the rest of the French population. Uh, and so they're really kind of evolving to exactly what the Muslim Brotherhood was thinking in the 1930s in Egypt, uh-huh. yeah. which is kind of a fascinating development. It is indeed. It is indeed. And, and, and it's consistent with fluctuations that have occurred in the jihadist movement from the beginning and adaptations and different perceptions, and it's largely based upon contextual factors. Um, right. I guess, I guess, my, I guess, I guess my, my, my last question... Um, is just in general with regard to the future sustainability of the uh, of the liberal order, I guess we might say. I mean, in many circumstances, you talk about information warfare and ideology, of course, only a component of the formulation of identity. But largely due to the war on terror and some of the 
the ideas uh, that have resonated behind it, particularly resonance of the idea that the United States is an imperialist power, that liberal democracies don't offer the type of stability that uh, countries like the Middle East need. I mean, these are these are pretty prevalent notions now. Um, and there's a lot of effort now in the Global Engagement Center, particularly an offshoot of the State Department tasked with sort of strategic communications and counter-narrative work to try to look at a better way where the United States can counter some of the disinformation now, not just against ISIS propaganda or al-Qaeda propaganda, but now primarily worried about disinformation coming from Russia, coming from Iran, coming from... I mean, if ideology doesn't necessarily play a foremost factor in identity, um, what is the best way to sort of repair... Uh, perceptions and attitudes about liberal democracies in the Muslim-majority uh, world? Is there a way to repair the damage that the war on terror has cast? And if if we can, uh, should we? And how might we go about sort of undoing some of that damaged reputation? And is it important to undo that? Um, might we see a resurgent authoritarianism that could very well put uh, the liberal uh, order, if you will, in in in, in danger. Well, in, you know, in the Middle East, uh, you have very very few democracies, unfortunately, uh, or liberal democracies. Uh, uh, and and um, you know, I they people. One great thing about people is that. They do have short memory, and they they move on with their lives. Uh, the, the the main thing that we have to do is not to keep reminding them that uh, about the war on terror and so on. It's basically to abandon the war on terror. I don't think it threatens us. I think we have much much bigger threat right now. Uh, in uh, to liberal democracy, and that's not just in this country, but in many countries uh, in the West, uh, namely the polarization of the electorate, uh, the uh, willingness in our own government to uh, do away with checks and balances, uh, and evolve toward. Uh, you know, a, a more uh, dictatorial uh, executive branch, which I think threatens liberal democracy far more than any Muslim uh, movement would, Islamist movement would. Uh, and, you know, you see that also in Hungary, in Poland. Uh, uh, it's, it's frightening. And uh, electorates in, in, in Germany and France are deeply divided as they are in England uh, and, and the Netherlands. It, 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 it's actually fairly frightening, but the, the threat is not from without. It's very much from within. I agree. Yes. Yeah. And... Um, and, and because of the polarization, you're going to have a division into two groups. And this may very well uh, degenerate into violence. I, I, you know, I'm not talking about civil war here. I'm just talking about much more 
uh, lower grade violence where you're going to have, you know, bombings back and forth, uh, you know, from, from two people. And it's really kind of cycles of retaliation I'm talking about. Uh, among the groups. And that kind of scares me because uh, that, of course, would uh, justify much stronger executive powers in order to reimpose law and order, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which, of course, would threaten liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of, sort of the Hungarian uh, situation, and it does have a, uh, the potential to metastasize, and I think uh make it much more important that we promote uh liberal democratic values domestically more so than project them abroad perhaps. Right. Uh, but uh but yeah. I mean I think I, I, I thank you for your time and, and, and the valuable discussion uh that we've had. Um and I hope that those that are interested in getting into this realm of practice, whether it's in research or entering into the still continuing to be relatively nascent field of preventing and violent extremism and sort of overcome uh, some of the uh, the biases and the uh, limited complexity that sort of has shrouded the field as the enemy has become jihadism and as we transition into uh, far right-wing uh, extremism and our primary concern for domestic uh, issues uh, as well, I, I think we, we, we tend to underplay the role that uh, hyperpolarization uh, plays in facilitating radicalization and in the interconnections between radicalization and violent extremism. Any final uh, words or, or yes. comments that you could say? Yes. Uh, basically, if, if you want to get into this field, there's absolutely no substitute but learning the element, the concept, and the use and practice of the scientific method. Mm-hmm. You have to understand con- the, the the importance of control groups. You have to uh, understand the importance of testing, of sensitivity and specificity, base rates, Bayesian probability. All of that is the key to understand not only uh, political violence, but any social phenomenon around you. Uh, it, it's, it's absolutely necessary to, to do that. So anybody who's interested in terrorism must first really take a very strong course in methodology and social science methods in order to understand how to make statements, how to validate them, how to kind of, uh, uh, look at real empirical evidence uh, and what counts as real empirical evidence uh, uh, in in order to test uh, your uh, uh, your model? So that's number one, really to acquire strong social science methodology. Number two is science is not about finding answers. Science is more eliminating wrong answers. And so as you progress, you always have to, you know, decide beforehand, I'm going to take a little time off, maybe it's a week or two, and question all my assumptions about the field that I'm in. It's extremely important. And says, well, how do I know that's true? Uh, Because 
Otherwise, you keep on going down the the, the wrong path. Uh, you know, implementing wrong policies and and not ever realizing it until a major disaster strikes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, number one, social science methodology. Number two, always question your assumptions and 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 try to uh, uh, see whether they're still. Uh, uh, true and relevant, especially relevant to the field you study. Mm-hmm. Very good advice. Very good advice. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And okay, uh, you're welcome. Yep. With that, we'll we'll end there. Thank you, Mark. Okay. Thanks. Yep. yep.